Today's scripture reading comes from Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 10. God speaks to us in his word. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. For the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Morning, everybody. Um, if you're new to Frontline, we, uh, we've been preaching through the book of Job. And uh, if you're a guest in a room, you're probably about ready to check out. <laughs> like, man, of all the days I could pick to come to church, it's, uh, it's the Job day. Well, we've been, this is, this is week eight of Job. And, um, and we've learned a lot. Job is one of those books that um, most people didn't grow up hearing about. You heard about Job a little bit, if you kind of... We're familiar with church. If you're not familiar with church, um, Job is one, a, a really weird name to give a guy. And two, it's a very interesting story. Um, so let me recap for you kind of where we've been as we get ready to close out this book and move on to the Gospel of Mark next week. Job was a man who, um, Job is a really old book, first off, one of the oldest works of literature um, really of all time. And we don't even know how to date it. It's so old. Job is a man who was found blameless before God. And uh, what that means is, is that he really honored God with his whole life. And Job had a lot of stuff. He was really wealthy. I mean, he had like tons of camels. And for some reason, the Bible chooses to declare how many female donkeys he had. I guess that was a really important thing back then. Um, so he, he had a lot of stuff. He had kids. He had, he had land. As a matter of fact, um, really the, how the Bible describes it is he would have been probably the wealthiest man on earth at the time. And he honored God with his life as well. Like his heart was right before God. The Bible calls him blameless. Not sinless, but blameless. There was nothing. Nobody could blame Job for anything, which is important to this story. Because Job is about to get everything taken away from him. And he gets no explanation as to why. There is um, this accuser that comes. The Bible calls the Satan, which means the accuser. And he comes to God. 
Not necessarily Satan like the father of lies, but just that word in Hebrew, the Satan, means the accuser. He comes to God and he basically tells God that the only reason Job worships him is because of all the stuff God gives him. If you didn't give him the stuff, he wouldn't worship you. And so God allows for Job to be tested, for his stuff to be taken away. And it all is taken away, and it's taken away just like that. And what we have is like one of the, one of the most tragic scenes in all the Bible is Job has nothing. He doesn't even have anything to scrape off. When he gets these boils all over his body, his health is gone, and he has to find a piece of broken pottery to scrape off the boils on his arm because he has nothing left. So Job's story is crazy. You've got 42 chapters in this book, most of which are Job and his friends. His friends come around him, and they're trying to just figure out what's going on. Why would God do this to you? And all of his friends, they sit around, and they have these kind of like high-level concepts of God. Well, God is this. Well, God doesn't do this. Well, God is righteous. Well, God is, he would never do this, whatever. And so ultimately what they end up doing is blaming Job. Job, what did you do to deserve this? Well, the Bible already says that he was blameless. So now, now we have this like ongoing conversation. 37 chapters of it, really 34 chapters of it. And you might be asking the question like, well, what is it that they're trying to figure out? Well, you'd be trying to figure out the same thing. But more important than why does this happen to me is they're asking the question that you ask all the time, whether you admit it or not, and I ask as well. And that is how can a sovereign God also be a just God and also be a loving God? How can God be sovereign over bad things happening to good people if he's love? And the, really the deeper question that kind of goes even past that is God governs the world somehow. He's sovereign. How should he govern the world? That's what you ask, and I ask the same thing. And Job and his friends ask that. How should God govern the world? But it's not the right question. The right question is how does he govern the world? And for 34 chapters in Job, man, there's this back and forth, and it's, there are times when it is brutal. I mean, the way Job talks to God, how angry he is, and the way that his friends just throw him under the bus, it's weird, man. It's a weird book. It's been hard to preach. But God has really taught us a lot about how he governs the world. And ultimately, for 34 chapters, we don't hear from God. And then in chapter 38, God comes on the scene and he speaks. And he says to Job, out of the whirlwind, out of the chaos of Job's life, God speaks and he says, basically, sit up straight, open up your eyes, I'm going to teach you about how I govern the world. And he goes on, man, and it is not cute. <laughs> it is not a cute moment. It's rebuke. But God, in his kindness, shows up to meet with Job. And he tells him things like, hey, buddy, do you know the details of the earth? He'll say things to him like, if you know, then tell me. Let me ask you and tell me if you know. Weird things like mountain goats giving birth. 
Do you know about mountain goats giving birth? God says. What about lions? What about cubs? What about lions' dens? What about ostriches? It's two chapters. Like It is crazy detailed how God describes how he governs the world because the question is, where is God? He obviously doesn't care about what's happening to me. And then the storm of life, the whirlwind, is what God comes out of, which lets us know he's right in the middle of the chaos. And then he confronts Job, and he straightens him out, man. He tells him, what about the foundations of the world? Where were you when I laid those? What about when I set the barriers to the Pacific Ocean? When I said this far and no more? This is an intense moment. God in his kindness as both God Almighty El Shaddai and covenantal family God Yahweh comes and he talks to Job, man. And he sets him straight. And now we're at the place of the story that comes after that confrontation. And we're going to see three things today. Job's response, which is repentance. God rebuking Job's friends. And then a restoration. Job gets restored everything. We're going to find out why he does that. Is that because Job suffered well? No, he didn't. But God restores him anyway. So the first thing is this. In Job 42, we see Job repenting. Job has been raging against God through chapters 3 through 37, trying to figure out why things are happening to him, trying to figure out how God would allow it. Job starts to think that God has lost control over his life and control over the universe, or that God has abandoned him. And what Job does is what you and I both do a lot, is that we make our problems, all the pain and suffering and problems of life, we make them really big, and God starts to shrink. We make him small. So problems big, God small. And God is silent through that. Chapter 38, God breaks the silence out of the whirlwind, talks about mountain goats, lions, ostriches, the ocean. He lets Job know that he's sovereign over chaos. He also lets Job know that he's sovereign over these two crazy, scary beasts, behemoth and leviathan, which represent death and evil in the world. He's sovereign over them. He talks about having them on a leash. Death. God has on a leash death. Evil, the darkness, this like corruptive, dark, evil upon evil. God, sovereign. The point is this. There's no chaos too chaotic for God. There's no darkness too dark for him. There is no mystery too mysterious for God. He knows everything. He sees it all. He is sovereign. He is not a fool. He's not absent. He's not aloof. He's not lazy, negligent, or distant. And he cannot, this is maybe the most important thing, I'm going to explain it. God cannot be made in our image. You were made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. God was not made in our image. 
But what we do in our life is what Job and his friends did is they think, how should God govern the world? And they make a God that's made in their image because we're just trying to figure out if God would just do things the way that I think they should be done, this world would be a much better place. We talk a lot in this series about, man, if God would just hire me as his PR guy. (laughs) You ever think that? People will go to church more. There'd be a lot less strife. Everybody feel more accepted. Nobody be freaking out about certain things. If God would just do what I think he should do, then, man, he would have great PR. Really marketable. That's me making God in my image. I want him to be exactly like me. It's ultimately arrogance and pride. And that's what Job and his friends did. How should God govern the world? God cannot be made in our image. He is different. On one hand, God knows us, became flesh, feels what we feel, was tempted in every every single way that we are, yet without sin. He knows us. He is intimate with us. Jesus, both man and God. But on the other hand, it's like, you do not want God three and one to operate the way that you would operate. I want you to think about the days that you wake up just moody and you don't know why. You might be moody today. You might have been drugged into this room and you're mad that you had to be here. I don't know. Dude, I wake up moody and I can't even explain why I'm just like upset at somebody or something. That's part of being human. If God were like me, He would be so self-absorbed, he would treat people based on what he gets from them. We don't need God to be like me. If God were like me, he would have never saved me. He'd be too grossed out. I'm too sinful. We need God to be God. We need to submit to him. And when he shows up like he did with Job, we need to do what Job did. We need to repent. Here's how Job responds. Job says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In verses five and six, he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God comes on the scene, and it's, we're going to talk about this a little more, but it's interesting that Job's first question isn't, why did you take my stuff from me? Or where is my stuff? Job's reaction to God is, he never thinks about his stuff when God shows up. It's just, let me fall down. He says, I repent in dust and ashes. And repent is a word that you might think, well, what did Job, what is he repenting from? Like, is, is this a, a type of repentance for did he sin against God in some way? Which the Bible doesn't mention him sinning against God. Old Testament repentance and New Testament repentance have a little bit different definitions. Old Testament repentance means this. In Hebrew, it means to retract a declared action. To retract a declared action. 
Job isn't repenting of past wrongs he's done. He's repenting of declared actions. His thinking and declaring that he can govern the world better than God or that God should be taken to court by him. Job is repenting in his heart and his thoughts about what he thought and felt about God. That's like deep level real repentance. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, do we repent for the stuff that we say? Yes. But it's just words that denote what we feel. When Job repents of a declared action, how I felt about God and how I thought, we're talking about real, true, deep, ongoing repentance. He's repenting of how he thinks God could govern the world. Job has taken God to court this whole time. Put him on trial. Job now sees God and he's not getting answers for why this pain and suffering happened to his life. So interesting. That's the first thing I would ask. Like, hey, bro, I lost everything. Nobody told me what was going on. Job didn't ask for answers. He didn't get them. You know why? Because he didn't need them. What he needed, he got. And this is what he got. Meeting with God. In his presence, surrounded by his glory, Job is humbled. And at this point, is only focused on God, not his pain and loss. If Job had died at this moment in the story, he would have been content. No answers. None needed. Simply being in the presence of Yahweh would have been enough It's what he needed more than anything, and it's what you need more than anything. I know there's pain in this room, man. I am intimate with some of the pain in this room. I'm standing up here as a dude that has pain in my life. I don't, this idea about pastors that we like aren't humans, that we don't need a savior, and that we don't struggle and inflict pain on people and that have pain inflicted on us, is absolutely silly. I have pain in my life. We have pain with our misplaced desires and our wants in life. And Man, this is a real struggle. What do I need? What do I need more than anything? What is it that I want? I want to ask God why, and I want Him to give me all the stuff that I want, but... I know what I need more than anything is the presence and the power of God in my life. That's what I need. In life, it's easy for us to misplace our desires or our wants. I mean, we tend to think that great vacations and taking enough vacations are (laughs) something that will bring us relief. We tend to think that like having enough in our savings account will bring us relief. I love vacations, man. I'm with you. I could be Jimmy Buffett. I could be like on the beach all the time. Nobody mess with me. Never talk to anybody ever again. Just be on the beach with a guitar. Great. I love them. When I go to the beach, when I go somewhere like that, I feel like my whole self. So I'm with you. We think that about our savings account. We think that all of those things give us what we need, that they're going to satisfy somehow. That's why we don't ever tithe. 
We just keep thinking, like, this is mine. This money's mine. It doesn't belong to God. Look, <laughs> the reason we talk about money from the stage is because Jesus talked about money more than anywhere else in the Bible. It is about your heart. That's what it's about. Your life, the stuff that you have, just like Job, like all of that wealth, all of that stuff, it ultimately comes down to your heart, what you do with it. And that's what we're after. That's what Jesus is after. What you do with your stuff is a direct reflection of what is going on in your heart. None of that stuff ever satisfies. Take all the vacations you want, man. Live a life of perpetual vacations. Get all the money you can. Whatever. Hustle, man. <laughs> it's not going to satisfy you. There's only one thing that does satisfy. And Job found out, man, it is meeting with God. Knowing God, meeting with him, being in awe of him, falling down and repenting. Job had more wealth and security than anyone on earth, and when he lost it all, he freaked out, and he blamed God. However, when God met with him, he never asked God about his stuff. He never even asked God about his family. God's presence was enough for him. He repented. And then comes this rebuke. I'm going to try. Dr. Emerson, I'll try to not mess these names up. I'll be ready for emails. After, <laughs> after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. It's interesting that Job's friends um, tried to qualify God's actions somehow by their understanding, their knowledge of him. There was a lot of talk about God's character, doctrine, God, how he operates in the world, what he's like, a lot of talk, a lot of like kind of feeling around the dark to try and explain God in a way that would make sense for what's happening to Job. And they did cross the line. I mean, they got it about half right, about half wrong with how they described God. There were some things they said that were like, that sounds like a pretty good explanation. And then here's Job, who has none of that, like no platitudes at all. Job is just angry. He's frustrated. He doesn't know what's going on. He's sad. He's despairing. Job is talking to God. His friends are talking about God. It even feels a little bit like Job crossed a line a few times. Almost sacrilege. Like the way that he was describing God, the way he was talking to God, feels a little bit uncomfortable, disrespectful. But still, he's talking to God. His friends are talking about God. And what happens in the end is God comes and rebukes his friends and commends Job. In the church, there's this idea 
that you have to be, be your ideal self to even be a part of the body. You have an ideal self out there that you're always grading about how you participated or how you performed in, in a group. And so the church, we tend to think, is a place where we like present our best selves. We don't let anybody in on what's really happening in our heart. And it should be the exact opposite of that. The church should be the place where we, like Job, cry out to God and people know what's going on in our heart and they gather around us and they help us cry out to God as well. The church should be the most honest place in the world. It should be a safe place to be totally authentic with how you are struggling. You are struggling. I mean, I am too. It, this is part of the human life is struggle. We should live openly and honestly with each other and with God. I love this, man. Job didn't have like correct things to say to God. He just brought his heart. I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm this, that, and the other. Recently, I've been walking um, with a friend of mine through some pain. And I feel honored in those moments when somebody can just tell me, like, I don't have anything theological to say. I'm not going to quote scripture at you. I'm just angry today. That's what I want for myself, and that's what I want for our church. And we should be able to go to God with that. Job did what God wants us to do. Come with your full, honest, and angry sometimes self to him. Say how you feel and trust God. Honesty with God is ultimate. The reality is, is he already knows you better than you know yourself anyway. You're just keeping it from him. He's hurting you, and he already knows how you feel. Job spends 34 chapters off and on talking to God in this way, crying out to him, expressing his frustration and anger. When the book starts, before all of that, God says, my servant Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And then, after all of that, he still calls him my servant Job. Man, what a picture of the gospel. If you are God's there is nothing you can do, nobody you can become to keep you from being God's. At the front of the book and the back of the book, it's God that sustains Job's. What made Job blameless before all of this? God did. What, made, what makes him blameless now? God. Job offered forgiveness to his friends who threw him under the bus and shamed him, just heaped shame on him. Although I'm sure it was incredibly hard, Job prayed for them. And that's when God restored Job, is when he prayed for his friends. So the next part of the story is telling. So far it's been repentance, rebuke, and now restoration. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Why did he do that? Why did God ask him to like be drugged through the coals again and forgive his friends who threw him under the bus? Here's why. Because forgiveness is always a part of the plan with God. Always. Right now in this story, in the Old Testament, hundreds of, thousands, hundreds of not thousands of years before Jesus comes, God is doing what he's done through the whole Bible. He is preaching the gospel of Jesus. When he had prayed for his friends, 
That's when restoration comes. Jesus is like Job, except a lot better. Job's friends threw him under the bus, shamed him. They pale in comparison to what we have done to God. And Jesus was broken by his friends, betrayed by his friends. And Jesus was more blameless and innocent than Job ever was. And he suffered more than Job did. And he forgave his friends. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, you, I was, you were, were y'all worried about the donkeys? I was really worried about the female donkeys. Sons and daughters on further down. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Why did God restore all Job's things? Job didn't ask for it. Everything was fully restored. His family, his wealth, his friends. Was it a reward for him suffering well? Did Job suffer well? I think I could argue that he didn't. He might suffer better than I would have, but I'm not sure he suffered well enough to receive all that. Now, the reason that God gave and restored everything to Job is twofold. One, it's because God is just gracious. I mean... There's no more than that, really. God is grace. He's so generous. He gives when you don't deserve. And then he gives more than you ever deserved, even if you did deserve it. And you don't deserve it. He just gives. He's that gracious. He restores to Job because he's just full of grace. And also at the same time, again, he's setting the stage for him coming on earth. He's setting the stage for Jesus being born and suffering for us. Jesus is the best, perfect blessing of God of all time. Job gets a lot of stuff back, gets family. All that stuff is blessing. Nothing compares to the ultimate blessing of God, and that is giving us himself in Jesus. And that's the story, man. Job lives to an old age, and he eventually dies. What a crazy book. This book, like every other book in the Bible, every other story, every other page points us to Jesus. There's two things I think we should gain from this book. My hope for us as a church is this. Purify your motives for worshiping God. Do you worship God because you want him to give you stuff? Do you pray because you want him to give you stuff? Have you believed the lie that if you serve God, he will bless you with things like wealth, family, painlessness, and reputation? The accuser came, and he accused Job of only worshiping God because of the stuff that God gives him. 
St. Augustine um, is a uh, historical theologian in the church. And he has this interesting scenario for us. It's as if God, if God came and proposed this to us. So imagine God proposing this. I will give you anything you want. You can possess the whole world. Nothing will be impossible for you. You will have infinite power. Nothing will be a sin. Nothing forbidden. You will never die, never have pain, never have anything you do not want, and always have anything you do want. Except for just one thing. You will never see my face. He goes on to say, would you take that deal? If not, if you wouldn't, you have the pure love of God. For look what you just did. You gave up the world and more, all possible worlds, all imagined worlds, all desired worlds, just for God. Did a chill arise in your heart when you heard the words, you will never see my face? That chill is the most precious thing in you. That is the pure love of God. Purify your motives for worshiping God. The gift of life is the presence of God. Through the mediating work of Jesus, we have access to the throne of grace. The best thing in life is God's presence, man. And the second thing is this. Simply that you will know what to do on your dark day. Because your dark day is coming. Some of you are in it now. But you'll know what to do. I think Job helps us. It trains us. It teaches us for our dark day. We have just observed Good Friday and Easter. Good Friday was really sweet in our church, but it was really dark. It felt a little like a funeral. It's the day that Jesus died. Throughout church history, they've looked upon Good Friday and lamented. And then Easter comes on Sunday. But there's a day in between called Holy Saturday. And it's that day that we don't have a lot of language for. There's not a lot to read about. Holy Saturday. And in a way, we're living in the same tension that Good Friday and Easter had in Holy Saturday. It's called the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Good Friday to Easter is we know that Jesus has died, but we look in anticipation for him rising again, although he has not yet. That's what Holy Saturday is. And then for us, because we live in the shadow of the resurrection, we can celebrate and know that Easter's coming. In the kingdom of God, God has inaugurated his kingdom through the power and the work of Jesus Christ. And he stared death in the face. He stared behemoth and leviathan, death and evil, and he has defeated them, and he has conquered them. He does have the keys to sin and death. He has that. That's real. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, totally rules over the whole creation. Revelation 19 talks about a day when he will come again. And the look of Jesus in that moment is one who's on a white horse. On his thigh is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's got flames of fire in his eyes. 
He's coming to lead the people of God into victory. That is the culmination of this time between the already and not yet. So we're in this moment where we know God's kingdom is inaugurated. It has not come fully yet when he restores the new heavens and new earth. So we have this tension, man. In our dark day, there are going to be days because of the weirdness of life, because of the weirdness of being in this already not yet moment, you're going to wake up moody some days. And other days you're not. And then there are going to be seasons of your life where you feel like God is being silent. You can't hear his voice. There'll be other seasons where it doesn't feel that way. It's the tension that we live in. What do we do on those dark days? How do we respond? Like Job, we go to God with every ounce of honesty you have, no matter what you feel like or no matter what's happening in your life. We trust, we believe that he is sovereign. He really is wise. He really is good. And he really does have behemoth and Leviathan on a leash. We trust God and lean on him even when chaos is everywhere. We stay the course, we listen, we lean into God, and we still believe him even though we don't feel like it. James 5 says this about Job. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James describes God in Job as compassionate and merciful. And he is, man. He's compassionate in his presence that he brought, merciful in his presence, in his revelation. His ultimate mercy is revealed in himself through Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful book. I feel like God has done a lot in us, and I feel like he still wants to do more today. Man, there are, there are people in the room right now that have done church, you know the language, you know the whole thing, and, but you haven't maybe necessarily believed this gospel. You just kind of go through the motions. And I want to invite you, if that's you in the room, or maybe you're just in here and you're like, I don't even, I've never believed the gospel. I think church is weird, but something's happening in your heart. This feels real to you. This feels like the truth. Man, I want to invite you to not hesitate. Don't delay. Come and give your life to Jesus today. You don't have to know everything about God to give your life to him. I don't know everything about God. I'm a pastor. Surrender your life to him. Know that his presence is everything. Nothing else satisfies. And if you're a Christian in the room, you maybe have forgotten this, then come today and be healed, man. Remember, God's presence in your life, that is everything. We need to desire it. We need to live honestly before him. Want the presence of God.